Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Uh, This summer we are working through a series on the seven messages to the seven churches of Asia, which you find in the first three chapters of Revelation. Uh, We're on the third message um, to the third church. We saw first that to Ephesus, Jesus said, you have forgot your first love. Come back to your first love. Your love has grown cold. And then Tim walked us last week through the church at Smyrna, which uh, didn't get any kind of rebuke from Jesus because they had suffered so much. And so we learned that as a Christian, you're going to suffer. And here are some ways to handle suffering through faith and through hope. Well, today we turn to the message to the church at Pergamum. Pergamum was another one of these cities, a very prominent city, which we'll talk about in a minute. Listen to what Jesus has to say to the church. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. God's word or Christ's word to the church. Amen. Well, one writer said that if Ephesus was the New York City of Asia during Paul's day, Pergamum was the Washington, D.C., And so what an appropriate uh, church to be talking about on 4th of July weekend. Uh, Pergamum was the center of governmental glory for Asia Minor. Let me tell you why. Uh, Way back in the reign of Caesar Augustus, who was the the emperor during Jesus' birth, so 90 years before this letter is written, he decided, hey, why don't we let people worship me? And so he started this thing called the emperor cult, where he created certain cities throughout the empire that had temples to the emperor, where people could go and get their patriotism on full force, more than just normal patriotism, like literally making sacrifices and praying and doing religious worship towards the ruler. And Pergamum was the only city in all of Asia that had one of those temples. People came to be patriotic for the Roman Empire there from all around. Because of that, other people saw an opportunity, and so other temples started to pop up. It was crowded with temples, this city. It was up on a hill not far from the coast, and there were, there were temples everywhere. There was a temple to Athena. 
There was a temple to the God of healing, which is symbolized in, in the well-known you know, stick with the snake twirled around it that you see on the EMT truck or used to see on the EMT truck. That was the symbol of the Greek God of healing. There was a temple to him there. Uh, there was even an altar to Zeus, the main man of the Greek pantheon. And the altar was so big that it was world-renowned. Uh, in fact, there's a uh, replica of it today in a museum in Berlin. And, and it's basically two dozen flights of stairs that you walk up and you enter this large um, <clears throat> colonnade surrounded on three sides by, by pillars. And in the middle is this giant box, which was the altar, huge. We were, you know, literally a crowd of people could walk into the box. And that whole box would be on fire, burning animals and burning other offerings to Zeus. That was Pergamum. The whole world at that time would have looked at the city of Pergamon and said, wow, what a great place to live. Power, politics, religion, wealth, pizzazz. Jesus looks at it and what does he say? Twice in the passage. It's where Satan lives. Did you see that? That's important, right? He says, I know where you dwell, verse 13, where Satan's throne is, meaning Satan's got a lot of influence there, and I know it, Jesus says. And then he comes back around and at the end of verse 13 to say, where Antipas was killed, your pastor who got murdered on that same altar to Zeus, that's where Satan dwells. And so for you as a church, Pergamum, you have to learn how to be Christians in the middle of a very steady stream that is flowing against Christianity and everything it stands for. Now, of course, I'm not making a one-to-one -one correlation between Washington, D.C. and Pergamum because there are many differences. And our country, we should say on the 4th of July weekend, has been greatly influenced by the Bible in ways that Pergamum wasn't yet. And we should be thankful for the many influences in past history of the truth on our country. Isn't that right? It's a very beautiful thing to be thankful for. However, I think most of us would agree the culture shifts. The culture is shifting. Um, it has shifted for a while now, away from biblical roots. And there are many senses in which to be Christians in America, in the place where we live, means we're going to have to swim upstream. Jesus tells them there's one thing you need to do to swim upstream, or at least the first thing you need to do to swim upstream, there are other things, but here's one thing. You've got to hold fast to my teaching, Jesus says. You've got to listen to what I teach you. You've got to believe it, and you can't let it go. Sound doctrine is important to the life of the church. Let's talk about it. You say, well, that's not what I wanted to talk about today. I'm sorry. This is Jesus' message. Sound. This is what he says to the church. Who am I to get in the way, right? So look at your bulletin. There are three points. First of all, why is sound doctrine so important to Jesus? Secondly, what makes false doctrine so dangerous to the church? And lastly, how does Jesus encourage us to contend for the faith? How does he encourage us to stand against the stream? All right, first of all, what makes or why is sound doctrine so important? Well, the first answer is that Jesus finds doctrine to be personal. Doctrine is personal to himself. Uh, look at verse 12. He begins his message to Pergamum the same way he does the other churches with a personal description of himself. 
to the, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him, describing himself, who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, for every church, he picks one thing about himself to describe that he knows is going to be needed for that church to remember. And here he picks the sharp two-edged sword, which comes directly from the chapter right before. We already saw this in the series. In Revelation 1, verse 16, maybe you have your Bible, you want to look at it. It described Jesus as the king out of whose mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Out of his mouth shot this sword with two sharp edges. That's weird. But it wasn't so weird considering that the Roman short sword was famously shaped like a tongue. That's the sword that the Roman soldiers used, the short sword that they all carried, had a tongue-like shape. And so Jesus picks this image and says, I open my mouth and instead of a tongue comes a sword, symbolizing my word. My word is my tool. My word is the thing that I have forged And I put my word to the test by teaching it to my people. It cuts both ways. It cuts coming and it cuts going. And I want you to pay attention to how I'm using my sword because it means a lot to me, Jesus is saying. It's like my own tongue. It matters. It's mine. In fact, he goes on in the next verse to make this even more apparent when he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, he says. So now he makes it an issue of his very own name. And we all know our names are very precious to us, aren't they? When someone talks bad about us, we, think, we say, you're running my name through the mud. We don't like that. Rightfully so. That's very hurtful and damaging. Jesus says, I commend you because for so long, even though... The world was against you. You held on to my word, and it was like you were holding on to my very name. That's how personal this is. And then he says, you haven't let go or you haven't denied my faith or faith in me. Again, personal, my faith. It's about faith in me. Doctrine is not just words on a page. Doctrine is the very heart of Jesus Christ. And what we do with the doctrines of the Scripture is what we're doing with Jesus And then he mentions this man Antipas, who we know from church tradition was the pastor of Pergamum in the beginning. And like I'd already mentioned, he was killed on the altar of Zeus, burnt alive, because he refused to give up his faith in Jesus and he refused to give up his ministry for Jesus in Pergamum. Look at what Jesus calls him. What name does he give him? My faithful witness. So the word of God, the Bible, is the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth. It's like his tongue, which he uses. When you believe it, it's like you're holding on to Jesus' name and his faith. And when you stand for it, you're his own personal faithful witness. That's how much Jesus cares about the Bible and about the way his people use it, right? Um, It's a little bit like that show Forged in Fire. Have you ever seen it? I love the show. It's on, I don't remember what channel. History Channel, yep. Asher and I used to watch it a lot. These blacksmiths would come in and make blades, whether it was knives or swords, and they would get tested at the end of the show. Were they going to hold up to damage? And every time at the end, I love watching it because those guys, or girls, there's lady blacksmiths as well. Uh, They forge these weapons, and at the end, they're sitting there kind of very nervous, you know, fingers crossed. What's going to happen when he takes my sword and slams it into an anvil? 
Is it going to shatter or not? You know, that's how personal it is. You can kind of see it on their face. When it shatters, they get shattered, you know. This is kind of what Jesus is saying. He's opening up his heart, and he's not saying that he's insecure, but not by any means. But he is saying, that's how personally I take it. When my word gets trashed, when my word is not used by my people, and it collects rust on the shelf, I feel like you've taken my heart, ripped it out, and stomped on it. And so church, sound doctrine means so much to Jesus, it is at the very bedrock of Christian living and at the very bedrock of church life. And yet, how do we often think about it? Not that. Uh, Here's what I hear all the time, and I hear stuff about this all the time because I'm a pastor. Pastor, I'm glad you love that stuff. That's just too deep for me. I'm a simple man. I'm a simple woman. Just tell me I'm going to heaven and I'm good. I don't need all that detail. I don't need to know all the details of what the Bible says. Just give me the Cliff Notes version of the Bible, and I'm good. I want you to consider, if that's you thinking that, I want you to consider something. There are deep things that are too deep for you and me to know. Absolutely. I don't disagree with that. Especially when you're talking about God, there are some deep things we cannot know, which are the things that the Bible doesn't talk about because we can't know them. There's plenty of those things, more than we know, obviously, because we don't know them. But the things contained in the Bible are not those things. How do you know? Because God told them to you. Why would he tell them to you, and why would he tell them to me if he wanted us to just say, ah, too deep? I don't like details. I'm more of a big picture guy. No, Jesus says, it's my very heart for you to know the details of my word. I mean, consider it. that The Bible is like a treasure chest of love letters from the Savior of your heart addressed to you. He wants you to pour over the details. Yeah, it will take a lifetime, of course. It takes us all a lifetime, but it's worth it. It's worth it to Jesus. The second thing I often hear is, oh, Stan, this is too divisive. You get people talking about doctrine and they start fighting. They start arguing. They start getting into debates. Uh, Churches split. That's why we have all these denominations. You know, there's Protestant, there's Catholic, there's a billion kinds of Protestant. And we all know these things are true. Doctrine divides, they say. Love unites. Hold on. Ask this question. If you're thinking that, ask this question. What was about to divide the church at Pergamum? Was it the few and and the main group of people that were still holding fast Jesus' word, were they the ones about to divide the church? Was it not, from Jesus' perspective, the ones who didn't care and the ones who were going off in their own way and trying to learn their own doctrine and make it up? Those are the ones that were... See, Jesus doesn't see it the way we see it. We, We think you say truth and people divide and so just don't say stuff. Jesus says, no, say the truth and I will produce unity around my truth. That's the kind of unity that matters anyway. The other other unity is not going to last. Unity around the truth will last. Go to that. And so don't dismiss it like it's divisive. Third thing I hear all the time. Oh, but Stan, the Bible, it's, it's confusing. There's so much stuff in there. I read one section and it says this. I go to another section and it says that. They don't seem to match. In the Old Testament, God's mowing people down. In the New Testament, he's healing people. Uh, how am I supposed to make sense of this? 
Well, let me just say, I sympathize because I went through the same thing. I remember when I first started reading the Bible, and, and for me, it started as a kid. That's just my experience. It doesn't have to be true of you. But when I was a kid, I started reading the Bible very regularly. And um, there was one particular book of the Bible. I'm not going to tell you which one it is. But there was one book that every time I read it, I thought, that doesn't belong in there. It doesn't make sense. It sounds all harsh. It doesn't, it doesn't make me feel good when I read it. It, it makes me feel worse about myself. I, maybe that shouldn't be in there. You want know, you know, to know something today? That book is my favorite book, or one of my favorite. I can't say my favorite. One of my favorite books of the Bible. And maybe more than any other book, I now realize how it fits with the rest of the Bible like a hand in a glove. How, how did that happen? Because I kept reading, kept asking questions, kept expressing doubts. Keep doing that. For you too, don't give up. Don't first glance at the Bible and think, man, what a mess. That's going to seem the case when you enter into anything that has some complexity to it the first time or the second time. Everything's like that. You have to keep going with it, keep exploring in order to see the connections, in order to start to see the coherence. The people that I know who've read the Bible the most are the ones that usually are the most convinced that it makes sense. The people who've read it the least are the ones coming to me saying, it doesn't make any sense. There's some lesson in that. And Jesus is saying, it is the sword of my mouth, church, oh church of mine that I died on the cross for, devote yourself to knowing it. It's the only thing that's going to steady you and keep you from going with the stream of this world where Satan dwells. It's the only thing. All right, that's the first thing. Let's look at the second. Why or what makes false doctrine so dangerous? Uh, and Jesus basically gives us two reasons that it's dangerous. First, what it leads to makes it dangerous. And second, that there is only one solution to it also makes it dangerous. All right, so look at what he says starting in verse 14, and it goes all the way down to verse 16 talking about this. All right, so verse 14. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Nicolaitans so therefore I tell you, repent. He tells them where false teaching leads by pointing them to the example of Balaam. All right, let's think about Balaam. You may never have heard of Balaam in your life. He's kind of a minor character. Book of Numbers in the Bible is in the Old Testament. This is where it comes from, about Numbers 20 to 22, somewhere around in there. Uh, Balaam was a prophet, or at least he liked to think of himself as a prophet. But here's the thing about Balaam. He had one foot in God's camp and one foot in the world's camp. He couldn't decide who he wanted to serve. He was partly with Yahweh, God, and he was partly with his own selfish gain. Always waffling. And so the king of Moab, Balak, who wanted to destroy Israel, came to Balaam and said, Balaam, I, I've heard that you like money, and so I'm going to offer you some money to curse Israel on my behalf, so God will listen to you and curse Israel. And Balaam, money lover that he was, took the money and went. God tried to stop him in several ways. Uh, kids, you'll remember this part of the story maybe. This is where God has his donkey speak to him. It's the only time in the Bible, the Bible's not full of, of you know, mythical things. It's, it's real life. 
But this happened one time, an animal rebuked a man. It's amazing. And it was because Balaam was greedy and wanted to do his own thing rather than do God's thing. Well, that didn't stop him either. Balaam went. But Balaam had enough of a foot in God's camp that he couldn't quite bring himself to say the words, curse Israel. He couldn't do it. And so he kept holding back, so much so that Balak, the king, got really mad at Balaam and says, you know, I'm not giving you any money. In fact, I might even kill you. I don't like you. You're not doing what I hired you to do. And so Balaam comes up with an idea. He says, Balak, I can't curse Israel, but come with me and I'll tell you a secret. And the Bible kind of goes a little bit quiet and doesn't tell us much about that conversation until later. Apparently what Balaam did is he took the king aside and said, I know their weakness. I can't curse them, but they are really, really prone to temptation. And so if you'll send some of your most beautiful women down into the camp and to seduce them, you'll have them. They'll sin and God will have to curse them like you want. And that's exactly what happened. Balak sent the Moabite women, some of them. They went down into the camp. As it says here, the people started having sexual immorality with those women, and they started having sexual immorality with them, and they started worshiping their gods with them. This happened in, in the place called Peor in the Bible. And right away, God comes with a plague and kills some of the Israelites. Um, by the way, as Jesus promises here, to those who teach falsely in the church, I will fight them with my sword. It says that Balaam himself got killed by the sword because of what he did. What do we learn from that? The same thing can happen in the church when people don't take God's word seriously. When people don't take God's word seriously, they start talking things that are false and teaching them. When they start teaching things that are false, that always leads to false behavior. If you don't remember anything else, remember this. Ideas have consequences every single time. We think sticks and stones break the bones, words can never hurt. That's not true. Words can hurt because words lead to actions, especially when they're ideas that capture the heart. And so a man, Balaam, who couldn't decide between God and money who started with this little deceptive message and planted it like a seed, sowed destruction in Israel because the people ended up behaving in sinful ways. The same thing happens in the church. Why is the church sometimes not any better behaved than the world? Because they believe falsely. They haven't learned the gospel truly and really in their heart. That's one reason why that happens. Why are there some churches in the world that really are only churches but because of the sign on the outside of the church? This is really true. You go into churches and they don't believe in the Bible. They don't believe in sin. They don't believe in salvation through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. They don't really believe Jesus rose bodily from the dead on the third day at Easter. It makes one ask, why do you even go? Right? Why do you even want the title on the outside of the church? Here's why. It started small. A bad idea led to a bad behavior, which led to a hardening in that bad behavior. Jesus says, I take this stuff seriously. It's dangerous. It leads to a dangerous place. And there's only one solution for it. Simple. Look at what it says there in verse 15. Or excuse me, 16. Repent. That's the only solution. 
I think the, the most beautiful word in the Bible right there, repent. It's a beautiful word. We often think of it being a harsh word, but I think we should reclaim the word repent for the side of beauty. Because here's what repent means. You can change. Here's what repent means. Your life does not have to be the way it is now. That's beautiful. And Jesus comes and says to his church all the time, he comes to me all the time and says, repent, Stan. You can be different. I will make you different. Come unto me. Once again, take refuge in me and listen to my word. And so he does the same there. He says, if you don't repent, I'm going to come and I'm going to bring this sword coming out of my mouth in a new way. I'm going to slice you down. And at the end of Revelation, chapter 19, it says one day Jesus will return and he will cut down all the nations with the sword coming out of his mouth. Here's what this is teaching. Church discipline saves from final judgment. Where there is no discipline in the church among God's people, judgment is sure to come in a very unwelcome way. But where discipline is practiced, people get saved from judgment. Say, so what is discipline in the church? Well, this is just one aspect of it. I can't get into all of it. That's a whole other sermon, but here's one aspect. Every member taking seriously their job to be a student of the Bible, studying it. Every member encouraging every other member to keep reading and keep learning. It doesn't matter what level you're on. Keep going. Keep learning. Everybody encouraging everybody else. It also means this. Every one of us being willing, when necessary, and in love, confronting our brothers and sisters and, get this, being confronted. We all need it. When you become a member of the church, you actually vow that this is what you'll do. When you say, I promise to study the purity and peace of the church, I submit myself to the government and discipline of the church. What you're saying is, I'm opening my life to your correction when I need it, and you are opening your life to mine when you need it. Um, there are church leaders who help oversee all this so that it doesn't become chaos. But in general, every one of us has a role to play in church discipline. By keeping the sword sharp, keeping the sword sharp, <laughs> learning the Bible, and by being an encouraging presence and even sometimes a confronting presence in the lives of your brothers and sisters. A lot of times this starts in the home with parents and kids and spouses, but a lot of times it also is required outside of that setting as well. Greater hope, we've got to be committed to this. It's one of the harder things of life, but you know what? Those churches that just have church on the outside, how do they get there? I don't want to be that church. I mean, I don't want Greater Hope to be that. Do you? How did those churches get there? They quit disciplining. They quit taking the sharp, two-edged sword of Jesus seriously. All right, on to the third thing and last thing today. How does Jesus encourage us to contend uh, how does he encourage us to stand against the stream of the culture around us? Again, America is not Pergamum. Pergamum had so much. It would have been really hard to be a Christian in Pergamum. I mean, think about it. Really hard. You were isolated. The power was against you. Caesar was against you. 
every job you had was somehow connected to one of those temples where when you went to a, you know, a staff meeting, they offered some sacrifice to some god. This is literally what happened in the Roman world. And you had to learn how to be in the world but not of it, and it was complicated. Praise God we're not there in America yet, but I think all of us would agree, especially maybe in recent times, we feel this, it is becoming and could become harder to be a Christian in America because not as many of our neighbors are Christians at the, at the moment. God can change that, but at the moment, they're not. What do you do? Well, first, you listen to Jesus' encouragement. Verses 17 and 18. There is no 18, 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, to the one who stands in the middle of the stream and doesn't give in. I will give some of the hidden manna. And a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And everybody said, huh? <laughs> yeah, let me, let me help you. I think I'll help you here. Manna. Manna was that bread from heaven that came to fall on the ground when the people of Israel were in the desert. They didn't have any food anywhere because they were in a desert. And every day God caused this special bread to appear on the ground. And actually, by the way, it says in the book of uh, Exodus that the bread looked like white stones on the ground, which is interesting in this connection. Uh, and it uses the same word. Uh, literally, the word here is crystals. It looked like crystals on the ground that they picked up and ate. And it tasted like honey-baked bread, you know. It was great. Here he says, I'm going to give you, if you conquer, I'll give you hidden manna. Why hidden? Well, after the manna stopped, and when they went into the promised land, it stopped, because they now had farms to farm. They took some of the manna and they put it inside the Ark of the Covenant to stay as a memorial. That was the hidden manna. Jesus is saying, if you conquer, I will give you some of the hidden manna. When they put that little piece of manna in the Ark of the Covenant, it was as if they were saying, all right, God fed our fathers, and we're going to put it in there so that we always remember that. But we're also going to put it in there to remind ourselves that while this manna is locked up in the Ark now, there's coming a day when the Ark's going to be opened, and a new kind of manna is going to come out to feed God's people. And so Jesus Christ shows up in the world and says, I am the bread that comes down from heaven to give life to the world. The bread that I give you is my flesh and my blood because I gave my life for you. It will become for you a nourishing source of strength. Here Jesus says, if you will hold fast to my word, even if people make fun of you, even if people hurt you, even if people like they did with Antipas, even if they kill you and burn you, whatever they do to you, if you hold fast to my word, I will give you some of that hidden manna. I will give you the personal nourishment and fellowship with me forever and ever. I will seat you down at the table of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And you will eat to your heart's content. Wow. And then the white stone, the crystal. It could refer in another way to the manna, but I think it's probably referring to something else. You see that ark where the manna was hidden? A priest, the name of the high priest, would go in front of that ark every year and worship God for the people. 
And the priest had stones all over his clothes. And on those stones were engraven names, just like this. On his head, he had a, had a golden stone, which was engraven with the name of God, Yahweh, it said. On his shoulder pads, he had two big stones, and they were engraven, one with six names of the six tribes, and the other named with the other six names of the other tribes. And then on his chest, he had 12 stones set in a breastplate, and on each of the 12 stones was one of the names of the tribes of Israel. And in that, he would come and worship God for the people and give the sacrifice. What did that mean? That meant because of his sacrifice, every person by name got to be in the very presence of God. There they were. They were standing outside. They couldn't go in there, but they, they knew, hey, the name of my ancestor is in there and God sees it. I came from Simeon. I'm not in there, but... My granddaddy Simeon, his name is on that chest and on those shoulders, covered by the name of God. And wow, we're getting access. Here, what is Jesus saying? Not only am I going to feed you forever with my presence, but I'm actually going to grant you an access to God that can't be taken away from you. Your name right now, think, I want to I blow your mind this morning. Your name right now is engraven on a stone. Right on the heart of Jesus, if you're a Christian. If you believe in him for your salvation, your name is written on a stone on Jesus' heart. And Jesus says, if you endure, if you believe, if you hold fast my word, I'm going to give you that stone one day. It's going to be yours. Access granted. Table set, meal ready, manna, stone, with me forever. What you now only know in part, and oh, how we know in part, we will then know in whole. What you only know by faith now, you will know by sight then. What you know uh, through struggle now, and oh, is it a struggle, you will know in victory then. That'll get you up in the morning to do your Bible study. <laughs> I think it will. If you're listening, it will. Because there's an idea here that, yeah, every Christian is going to enjoy heaven. But I think, y'all, those who put the most in here are going to enjoy it more. I think Jesus backs me up on this. The more you know of him here from his word, the more you're going to enjoy heaven. The least you know him, the least you're going to enjoy it. That's a sermon for another time. Because I can see on your face you don't believe me. But, try, but think about it. The more we invest into that sharp two-edged sword of Jesus' word now, the more heaven's going to pop. And so study the Bible. Study the truth. Hold on to it. Don't let the world convince you that it's better to go their way rather than his way. It's never better. They do not have a white stone for you. They do not have hinted manna for you or for me. Amen? Let's pray together.